0: Uh, it's a uh, privilege, uh, as always, to be here with you. Um, I didn't count, but I am i think this is the fourth or fifth time uh, that I've preached at Covenant Life. Um, you know, there are, there are some times when you preach where uh, you think, I've got this one. I'm ready to go. Um, this is not one of those. I actually... Um, I am am leaning hard on the Holy Spirit this morning. So uh, pray with me, if you would, before we come to God's Word. Oh, Father, um, you are a good, good God, and you provide us with all that we need. I pray, Lord, that in our weakness, you would be our strength. I pray that in those places and in those ways where we do not know how to stand or what to to say, uh, that you would stand for us, that you would provide us with your words. I pray, Lord, that this morning, as we hear your word to us from Philippians chapter 2, you would give us ears to hear. Oh, Lord, would you would you open our hearts to be transformed? Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Pray that as we are confronted by your word, we would not go out the same as we came in. Be with us, oh Lord, I pray in this time together. I'm going to turn us to uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. That's going to be our text this morning. Uh, before, we, before we get there and read that, though, um, I was, as I was thinking about this passage, I was, um, I was thinking about uh, one of the most famous poems of the 20th century. So I don't know if we have any English-lit people in class here in class. in the congregation here. Um, uh, the the Irish poet, uh, W.B. Yeats, uh, he wrote a poem in 1919, it's called The Second Coming. It's one of the most famous poems of the 20th century. Uh, now, if you're a historian, like I am, uh, you know that 1919 is an interesting date because it's the year after World War One ended and World War I was a really bad war, it was so bad, they decided to do it all over again, right? They messed it up the first time, so let's do it again. They call that one World War II. Um, It was also the second year of what was really the first global pandemic. Uh, It's usually called the Great Influenza Epidemic, 1918, 1919. Um, As many people died of that as died in World War I. And actually Yates's wife, um, as he was writing this poem, his pregnant wife was recovering uh, from uh, from having contracted uh, the influenza strain. Uh, so, so there's there's a lot going on here, and and very much I think this poem it evokes um, a sense of the uh, what the the aimlessness, the the despair, even the uncertainty about the future uh, that was very much a part of life in 1919, at least least from Yeats' perspective. So, um, As I say, it's called the second coming. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'll just give you a couple of uh, the first few lines. Um, It begins like this. It says, um, turning and turning in the widening gyre. A gyre is like um, like a vortex or a whirlpool. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. The center does not hold. Things fall apart. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. In that poem, Yeats sees the world coming apart at the seams. That's the image. The center doesn't hold. Things fall apart. And you're saying to yourself, what does this have to do with the book of Philippians? Well, when when Paul wrote the letter to the book to the church at Philippi, um, he, was, he was writing to a congregation that was kind of on the verge. It was it was a good church, but it was a church that was beginning to be pulled in different directions. Different agendas, different interest groups were pulling it in different directions. And Paul writes to remind them that there is a center to their lives and that that center holds. That center is Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Now, Paul reminds them of this lesson in a lot of different ways. He exhorts them, he rebukes them, he encourages them. All kinds of things are going on. But I think the, the way that over and over again he most powerfully displays this center is by displaying to them examples of people who are living their lives in ways that point to that center. So he puts his own life on display. His own life, even as he's writing this letter, he's imprisoned for having borne witness to Christ. He puts the life of his of his. Son in the faith Timothy on display, who selflessly has given his life to serve alongside Paul and make Christ known. He puts Epaphroditus on display. Epaphroditus is a minister from the church in Philippi who has risked his life to come and help Paul. He puts the life of the Philippians on display. You who gave what you had in order to make Christ known. And uh, preeminently, right, he puts the center on display, which is Christ himself. Christ who, as Paul puts it in chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, did not think equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. Instead, he humbled himself. became obedient to the point of death. Even to that most shameful of all deaths, death on the cross. He did that to free us from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil, and to bring glory to God. So uh, when we come to Philippians 2, 14 through 16, Paul has, has just finished pointing the Philippians to that picture of Christ. And he is now going to show them, first, what happens when you put Christ at the center. And second, what are the consequences of you doing that for those around you? These are the two things that I want to bring out as we look at Philippians 2, 14 to 16. So um, turn there, if you would, And I'm going to get a little bit of a running start. I'll actually start in verse 12, and um, I will go through verse 17, or 18 actually, but we're going to just focus on uh, 14 through 16 today. So this is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for... so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And he goes on. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So I think it's helpful as we, as we think about this passage um, I don't always do this, but but I think it's helpful in this case to focus on the grammar and the structure just a little bit. Paul's writing is often quite dense. It's a little bit difficult to know what's going on. This is an action-packed chunk of Scripture. So what is the basic structure that he lays before us? I'm going to suggest that it's basically three things that are happening in this passage. First, we get a command. Right? Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So a command, do all things. And he adds to that command two clauses that come under the command. Do all things, and then he gives us a purpose. A purpose with the result, or in order that, you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. So a command a purpose, excuse me, a result. And then a little bit later on in verse 16, he gives us a purpose as well. Do all things with a result that you may be blameless and innocent so that, that's the result, so that I may be proud. A command, a result, and a purpose. Those are the three things that we get here. Let's work through those uh, one by one, first a command. Note, note that it is a positive command. It's, it's not don't do this, it is do this, right? In fact, it's it's an expansively positive command. Do all things, that is, everything that you do, whatever you do, do it in this way. Do it without grumbling or disputing. Um. This is not, by the way, mere behavioralism, right? This isn't just, my mom used to always say this, if you can't say something nice, don't say it at all. That's not what this is. This is much deeper than that. Because what Paul is after is actually what's coming up out of the heart. Now, a few months ago when we were talking about this passage, I asked my kids, I said, what does grumbling sound like? And You have to understand, I never taught them this. I said, what does grumbling sound like? And they said, they knew exactly what grumbling sounded like without ever being taught it. What does disputing sound like? That's disputing. Nobody has to teach you that. That comes up out of our sinful and fallen hearts. What Paul is calling for is something much more radical than if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all. What he's calling for is behavior that flows from a different sort of heart, that reflects something going on beneath the surface that is different from a heart that gives rise to grumbling and disputing. So let's talk about those two ideas, grumbling and disputing. What's grumbling? I'm gonna suggest that grumbling is an immature response where we think that God is holding out on us. I think that's what grumbling is. It's when we think that God is holding out on us and we want something more than what we're getting, grumbling. Think about uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? This is, grumbling is what the, 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 the serpent sows in their hearts. Why doesn't God want you to eat from that tree? Is he, is he holding the best back for himself? Oh, oh, he's just, he's just giving you the table scraps. You don't get the good stuff. If only you could have the good stuff. Or think about um, Israel in, in the wilderness. Right? They, they've been freed by God from bondage in Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness, and what do they do? they start to grumble and complain. Manna again? Didn't we just have this last night? It was so much better back in Egypt. Where's that land flowing with milk and honey that we were promised? Why is there so much sand out here? Grumbling is what happens when we think that we deserve more than what we have. Why do we grumble? Grumble because life is hard. Life is hard. We grumble because our hearts want something more than what they have. Now, the way that the Bible talks about this this longing, this desire for something more than what we have is it uses the word glory, right? And our hearts long for glory. We want glory and that is not That's not wrong, because we actually are made for glory. That's what we're for. We're made for glory. And so when our hearts long for that, they're longing for something that really is truly what we're made for. The problem is, we don't always want to get there the way that we should. You see, in God's economy, glory comes at the end of suffering you pass through suffering in order to get to glory. Paul says earlier in the book of Philippians, um, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering comes along with the Christian life on the way to glory. And even the son of God, Paul has just finished telling, the Philippians in Philippians chapter two, even the son of God passed through suffering. He passed through death before he was exalted. The problem is that we don't want that. That's not what we want, right? We want glory without suffering. We want Christ without a cross. We want a God who's made in our own image. But if you want God, you want the God of glory, the God who gives glory. The only place that you find Him, the only place that you can meet Him, is actually in Christ, hanging on the cross. There is no way to glory except through suffering. Now, having said that, um, I don't want to. I don't want to diminish the reality of suffering, the the hardness of it, the severity. Um, suffering is is. True, uh, hard things really do happen in life. I'm not trying to downplay them. Uh, We are called to weep with those who weep. Real suffering should be met with real comfort, right? There are are people, I'm sure, even in this congregation who are suffering with the reality of loneliness, who are suffering with the reality of, you know, my, my plans are not going. I have great plans for my life, and they're not going the way that they should be. People are suffering with real things. If that's you, if you're in that place right now, here's the comfort I want to extend. Take comfort in knowing that our Lord Jesus did not grumble when he was suffering. He didn't grumble. Where, Where Israel failed, where Adam failed, our Lord did not fail. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, talks about him enduring the cross. Though he despised the shame of it, he didn't didn't like the suffering, right? He endured the cross, why? For the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What's the joy set before him? It's you. You are the joy that was set before Christ for which he endured the shame of the cross. Because Christ did that, because Christ succeeded where Adam and Israel failed, because of that, all who rest in him become heirs of, to that glory, that exaltation that he received having done all things well. Well, that's grumbling. What about disputing? I think that if if grumbling is aimed primarily upward, vertically towards God, I think disputing is a horizontal thing. It's quarrelsomeness, right? We direct it at one another. It's when we reject God's plans and we do what is right in our own eyes. Disputing is what happens when we pursue different agendas, when we pursue different goals. Somebody goes this way, somebody else goes that way. Everybody's trying to maximize their own interests. The center does not hold. Things fall apart. So, Covenant Life, Um, hear this very clearly. The Church of Christ doesn't have more than one agenda. We only have one agenda. We have one center. We have one plot, one goal, one purpose, one end. What is that? Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on. I press on. For the goal, toward the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. World we live in is divided. It is, it is not harmonious. It lacks peace. There is no unity. There can't be, because apart from the grace of God in Christ, what we all seek to do is put ourselves at the center of that whirling gyre, that vortex. We try to put ourselves at the heart of everything. But brothers and sisters, that's not the world that we live in. If you are in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. And that means that you have a different center. And that center is not yourself. That center is Christ, our King. So no grumbling. No disputing. Positively, the way that we could frame that is to say, no grumbling, therefore rejoice. we could say, no disputing. Instead, be of one mind. Be captivated by the heavenly hope that awaits you. And make that hope your own. Because Christ has made you his own. You belong to him. Be who you are. If we decide that um, grumbling and complaining is less good than rejoicing and being of one mind, as I, as I hope and trust we will, we might ask, what does that look like? And I think Paul gives it to us. He says, do all things that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It's verse 15. I want you to pay careful attention here. He does not say... I want you to do all things well without grumbling and disputing so that you will be children of God. Blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. That's not what he says. Now that would be a confusion of law and gospel. Okay? The law says if you do this, then you get the benefit. Then you get the blessing. If you do all things well, if you don't grumble and dispute, then you get to be children of God. That's not what Paul says. Paul offers us the good news of the gospel. Paul says, you are children of God. Therefore, don't grumble and dispute. That's not what children of God do. If we try to become children of God by earning it, by going through the motions, we never get there. Because adoption is a gift. It's a gift given to us because we are in Christ, who is the Son of God. And if we're in Christ, who is the Son of God, then we too are sons and daughters of God, children of God in Christ. In fact, verse 15 is not about our standing before God. Verse 15 is not about our standing before God. Paul has already cleared that up very well, right? In, in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and especially in chapter 3, Paul explains that our righteousness, our standing before God, doesn't come through works of the law. Instead, it comes through faith. What's actually in view here is our standing before others. That's what Paul is thinking about in verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation. He's thinking about our standing before others. How are others seeing us? How do they view us? What do they see when they looked at us? Paul has in place here especially the crooked and twisted generation in the midst of whom we shine as lights. crooked and twisted generation, uh, this, is, this is not the nicest way to talk about the people that we live amongst. What does Paul have in mind? He's, he's thinking here about those who, instead of looking at and turning to God and seeing him as the, the straight line Right? The, the, that which tells them who they are, that which they measure themselves against, that which tells them what they're for, their identity, their purpose. Instead of looking to God for that, he's thinking about those who look to themselves, who draw from their own feelings, their own internal dispositions, their own, their own ideas, who they are and what they're for, their identity, their purpose. Uh, The church father, Augustine, uh, he he had a phrase that he used, incurvatus in se. It means turned in or bent in, twisted in on themselves. He says that these people are incurvatus in se. They're turned in on themselves. Rather than lifting their eyes up to God to see who they are and what they're for. Instead, they look in to themselves. They're twisted in on themselves. And what happens, Augustine says, when you do that is that you end up putting yourself at the center and using everyone and everything to serve your desires. He says that's the consequence of being incurvatus in se, of being crooked and twisted in this way. It's a little bit like in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Um, there is no king in the land, right? There's no one to tell you what to do right and wrong. There's no king in the land, and therefore everyone does what is right in his own sight. Everybody pulls in their own direction. The center doesn't hold. Paul says that when the crooked and twisted generation, when those who are incrobatus and say, when they see you, they should see children of God who rejoice and are of one mind. In effect, he's telling the Philippians that they should see in the Philippians the Son of God who did not grumble, but instead rejoiced, who wasn't quarrelsome, but instead counted others more significant than himself. And that when they see the Son of God in the Philippians who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, they will then also meet the one who is exalted and given the name above every name, before whom every knee should bow and every tongue confess, so that that twisted and crooked generation may recognize in the Philippians the Lord before whom they should bow and acknowledge as their Lord. This is a high calling, that he sets before the Philippians, but he sets it before us as well. So, shine. Covenant life, shine. Show those who are in the darkness that there is something better than the sandcastle kingdoms that people are building with their lives. Things that are blown away by the wind. Things that the next tide will come and destroy. There are things that last, and Paul is calling us and them to those things. Speaking of uh, wind and waves, um, last September, uh, my family and I were were in Duluth, actually, for the last Presbytery meeting. And uh, we took a a trip up to Split Rock Lighthouse. I see a few people nodding their heads. That's encouraging to me. Um, It's it's a bit north of Duluth, right on the, the... banks of uh, Lake Superior, and it is apparently the most photographed spot in Minnesota. I didn't know that, the most photographed spot in Minnesota. Um, what is it? It's a lighthouse. It's a lighthouse that was built and opened in the year 1910. So for those who are keeping count, it's nine years before W.B. Yeats wrote his poem. No, there's no connection there. It just just occurred to me. Okay, so 1910, it opened its doors. Why did they build a lighthouse? There actually wasn't even a road to that place. Right? They had to do it all from the, from the water. Uh, why would they build a lighthouse out on this you know, very remote part of Lake Superior? Well, because in late November 1905, there was a huge storm that went through the region and uh, it, it, it led to the death of 36 seamen and uh, the loss of 29 ships. And they said, well, this is, this is disastrous. Uh, we, we don't want this to happen. Let's build a lighthouse. And so they did in 1910, they built this lighthouse and it started operating. Um, it, it retired in 1969, and between 1910 and 1969, no boats were lost, no boats ran aground, nobody died. That's what light does, right? It exposes, it warms, it brings hope, it protects. That's what the Apostle Paul is calling us to. He says, you are the light of the world. It's your job to expose, to warn, to protect, to bring hope. Folks, the the culture around us is tearing itself apart. Center doesn't hold. Uh, That is not a note of pessimism. Uh, that's actually a great thing in its own way, in God's providence, which is to say, the darker the darkness, the lighter the light. Right? This is this is an opportunity uh, to shed the light of Christ and to shine it into the darkness. People who have no hope will respond to hope being offered to them. But we aren't we aren't just called to hold out the light of the gospel as if we were, I don't know, like candlesticks or something. We're actually called to something more than that. It's not so much that we are candlesticks. Uh, we're more like light bulbs, or maybe stars in the sky, something like that. That is to say, we're not just the thing that holds out the light, a facilitator to the light. We're actually that through which the light shines like a string of Christmas tree lights. When you plug them in, the lights themselves become brilliant and glorious. So too with us, plugged in as we are to the light of Christ, we shine forth, we display Christ's life, holding fast to the word of life, that is, to Christ who is our life. And as we hold fast to Christ, we hold forth that light to others, that word of life. As we receive power from the source, we can't help it. We display his glory to those around us. That's what Paul is calling us to, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, holding fast to the word of life, fast to the word of life. But there's there's a little bit more here You recall that our passage contained a command, do all things, a result, that you may be children of God, and then also a purpose in verse 16, so that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Uh, Now, if you... If you know the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, Old Testament uh, wisdom literature, um, that idea of in vain or vanity is an idea that shows up many times in that book. The preacher who wrote that book likes to say vanity of vanities. It's kind of like his catchphrase. It means everything's meaningless, nothing works. Uh, Life is like like a spray bottle. The mist goes out, and it disappears. It doesn't accomplish anything. Paul says he doesn't want to run in vain or labor in vain. But he also tells us that he has hope of something more, something greater. He says that he's anticipating a future event, the day when he stands before the Savior who subjects all things to himself, And he says he is confident, he hopes that that will be for him a day not of shame and humiliation, but a day of glory and joy. Yeah, but Paul, still. Proud? You'll be proud, Paul? Isn't proud a bad thing? We're not supposed to be proud, are we? Proverbs 11 when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 29, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. That doesn't sound like something that we should be looking forward to, pride. So obviously there's something more going on here. This pride that Paul is talking about must be something different than what Proverbs 11 and Proverbs 29 are talking about. I think if we flip it upside down, we'll begin to see things a little bit more clearly. What's the opposite of pride? Shame. What would it look like for Paul to stand before Christ and be ashamed? I think it would look like him standing before Christ and saying, the gifts that you gave me, the opportunities that you presented before me, I squandered them. I did nothing with them. They were in vain. They meant nothing. But Paul is confident that what God began in the Philippians will be completed. And that on that day, he is going to present them to Christ As those over whom he labored, those for whom he shed tears, those whom he taught, those whom he nourished as children in the faith. And that's what Paul means when he says, so that I may be proud. He means, be light in the darkness that Christ has made you to be and that he is making you to be, so that I won't have to stand before him ashamed of wasting what he gave me. I don't know if you think about that very often. You think about those who have given themselves in order to give you Christ. You think about the men and women who have shed tears, who have lost sleep over you, You think about those who have spent hours and days and years teaching and praying, speaking sometimes hard words to you uh, when you don't want to hear them. I became a Christian uh, early in high school. I grew up in a family that didn't know the Lord, had no uh, faith commitment of any kind. And in God's providence, I stumbled into Christian Life Center in Merced, California. And before too long, I met Eddie and Andrea Holtgren. Uh, Eddie was, uh, still is, a truck driver, and Andrea is his very long-suffering wife. Uh, They loved me. They uh, poured themselves into me. In many ways, the reason why I am following Christ today is because Eddie and Andrea loved. They taught me how to follow Christ, not perfectly. They definitely weren't perfect, but they did give of themselves to me in really profound ways. A few months ago, uh, Eddie sent me a sent me an email, uh, and I'm, I'm going to share just a little bit of it with you. Not because it makes me sound good, but just because I want you to I want you to hear. Um, what what it means for people who who have poured themselves into you to know that you are following Christ. Uh, Eddie wrote this. He said, We are so proud of you, my friend. Uh, You can't imagine our joy at seeing your gifts being used for the kingdom and humbled that the Lord included us in your story. Uh, Eddie's wrong. He's dead wrong about that. Uh, The Lord didn't include them in my story. He included all of us in his story. But Eddie is proud, and he will be proud on the day of Christ because I'm walking with Christ. One motivation for me to continue doing that is to bring joy to him and Andrea. So look, this is the second group. This is the second group that we are called to shine like lights in the world before, not just the crooked and twisted generation, but also our brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially those who have poured themselves out for us. So who's poured themselves out for you, covenant life? I I have no doubt that your Christian life is enriched by those whose examples you have witnessed those whose ministries you have received. There are a lot of good reasons to follow Christ, a lot of good motivations for following Christ. And one of them, admittedly, um, a lesser one, But, but nevertheless a real one, so that those who have poured themselves out for us might be proud on that day, that they didn't run in vain, that they didn't labor in vain. So are you working out your own salvation right now in a way that will cause those who have given Christ to you to say, I just knew it. I knew that he who began a good work in you would bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Here's your challenge. If you know Christ, think about the men and women whom God has used to show you what it means to shine like lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That is certainly going to include your pastor, pastors, both past and present. Uh, Elders, maybe for some of you, parents and grandparents, siblings, dorm mates. For others, it might include Sunday school teachers, maybe mothers in the faith. You should let them know. You should let them know that they have made a difference in your life so that they can look forward with joy to the day when they will stand before Christ knowing that they won't be ashamed. And second, you should think about who you're pouring into right now. Who are you pouring into? Who at Covenant Life are you going to come alongside of to help them shine as lights in the world? And who outside of Covenant Life are you going to hold forth the word of life so that when they look at you, they say, wow, the center really holds for her. And that center is Christ. Covenant life, don't shrink away from this calling. To hold forth and to hold fast to the word of life. I would encourage you to lean into it and to do so more and more as you grow in maturity towards Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do this in each one of our hearts. I pray, O Lord, that you would turn us towards your Son who is at the center of all things, I pray, God, that you would give us grace to go to those who have poured into us. That we would be an encouragement to them. I pray as well, O Lord, that you would help us to shine forth as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life before those who do not know you in the hope that they would turn and bow the knee before the one who was humbled and then exalted and before whom every knee shall bow. It's in his name that we pray.